It's Friday, February 14th. No, it's not Friday. What day is today? Is today Monday? It's uh, Monday, dude. Monday. It's from Monday. Wow. <laughs> what did bro they Friday. do to you in PT, bro? Uh, <laughs> it's Monday, February 14th. You're listening to the Tech Breakfast Podcast, the show that brings you delicious tech news and all the hot takes you can handle. With Tyler Gates, Russ Cantwell, and Aaron Bewley. It's episode 240. That feels like a milestone to me. And we have a special guest on the show, Mr. James Urquhart. How y'all doing? Doing well. Right. I think you, you nailed the last name, by the way. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I know that was that, that's like that's extra points right there. So <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a pro at uh, pronouncing last names. If, uh, if yeah. anyone has listened to the show for a while, they'll know that's, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, okay, all right, um, James, uh, give us like you know five seconds on you, and then let's do um, some today in tech history, and then let's talk about what you came to talk about. But uh, how do people know you? Are you like in technology? Is that a thing that you do or what's going yeah, on there? Yeah, this is uh, you know, a little thing that uh, I, I wrote. Uh, I've been kind of doing distributed systems for a long time, but I wrote this blog on cloud computing back in sort of the 2008 to 2013 or 14 timeframe called The Wisdom of Clouds that was on CNET. And a lot of people know me from that um, kind of early prognostication about cloud and its value. Um, and uh, I've also, uh, most recently, I've written a book that we'll talk a bit about here today called Flow Architectures, the Future of Streaming and Event-Driven Integration. And uh, uh, and I've been in the industry uh, working for a variety of different companies, uh, uh, mostly uh, doing product management or uh, SE and or post-sales work um, and, uh, and management of, of said. Uh, and for the last, uh, you know, close to 30 years, I've been probably 20 of those have been in various vendors related to distributed systems development and operations. That's awesome, man. When did you start your tech journey? How old were you? <laughs> well, to be really honest, my first programming class, I was in fifth grade in 1977 or 78. Uh, I took a basic class. We were just lucky enough that one of the kids' moms was uh, programming for Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids, where I grew up. And uh, so, you know, started doing programming then. And then one of my neighbors had the second Apple II computer in the state of Iowa. Um, wow. And so we sat down and, and, <laughs> Dang, and yeah, cool. my buddy, we sat down and played games at first, but then discovered the programming stuff and started writing little programs. and. And so, you know, I, I was I was always a big fan of computers and electronics for since I was uh, really quite young. So okay, well, we're going to test some of that knowledge a little bit right now. In what <laughs> right, we call uh, today in tech history. So this is February fourteenth, but you have to pick the year that it happened. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So February fourteenth was the birth of IBM. Do you want to guess what year that was? And I'll, let me t let me give you a little bit more detail, though. The Computing Tabulating Recording Corporation is renamed to International Business Machines, aka IBM, on this day. What year? Jeez, IBM. This is one of those ones where I'm not going to say the year like far enough back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> this is when IBM was founded. I'm sorry. Yes, that's when you're. That's what you're guessing. Oh, jeez. Okay, fine. I got this. I'm gonna go with uh, with the the saga of Tyler Gates and uh, nah, stick to the 20s. <laughs> and we go tw 1926. That's my year. Okay. Six. Oh, jeez. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. Six. What is it? 20? I feel like I'm gonna go post war. I'm gonna go 1948. Okay. Okay. He's taking the over. Oh, uh, I, Russ, I can't believe you took the 20s. That feels I did. wrong. Those I, are mine. I took, Those I are took mine. it from you. Pick, pick a number, Tyler. We got, we got several of these ah, to go through. Fine. Let's go. Oh, do we now? <laughs> I see what kind of <laughs> it's going to be. I'm going to go uh, 1917. Why not? Okay. Uh, 1924. Okay. So I was going ah, to real quick. Oh, that's, that's, or I am. Russ does not win. He went over. You don't get to change oh, the rules it? now. He said twenty-six. It's, it's always price of right. It's, it's closest. No, it's we always don't do make. Don't <laughs> make me go back to all the episodes where you guys claim victory because of price is right stuff. 
You know I'll what? Do why don't you because... go? Why don't you go on ahead and go back and do all that for us? <laughs> yeah, go, go do that because what? What? We'll it's post it to the chat because you're one. You're one. You're one closer. Anyway, it's closest. Oh, hey, right. it's fine. You can change the rules whenever you want. It's your it's your <laughs> channel, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. All right. What's let's next? try a different one. Okay, February fourteenth. Again, this day, the telephone was patented by two men on the same day, separately. Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray. This set the stage for controversy over who actually invented the telephone and draw mm. in, in a drawn out legal battle. Ah, now, I'm guessing everyone thinks it was Alexander Graham Bell, so I'm guessing he won that because Elisha Gray is a, as familiar of a of a name. But it's I know not, not Graham a Bell had a lot name, more. That's a fact. Yeah, he had a lot more patents. But what year? Oh my gosh! For the for the this is for the phone's invention. Yes. 1872. Uh, 1800s. Yeah, pick a Way year in the 1800s. You can't just 18, say that. Nah, just, 18, just stick with 1880. 1880. Okay, all right. I'm going to go. I'll go 1884. Whoa, okay, what I did like you it. say, Tyler? 72, 1872. What? Okay, you guys are both four years apart. It was 1876. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, pit, well, a pity so there now, wasn't now a justified have... baseline of how we decide who's actually won this. Moving Wait, on. I've never had that before. <laughs> how do we do this now? I. All right, rock, paper, scissors. What'd there you pick, you go, Tyler? Fargo for it. Whichever one beats yours. <laughs> Dang it. Okay, here we go. This one's a lot more modern, okay? The very first modern GPS satellite launched today, February 14th. Can you believe this? There's so much that happened on February 14th. You'd think these guys and girls would have been busy with other stuff on Valentine's Day. but Commercial satellite launch, you said? The first modern GPS. So the first oh, modern of 24. GPS. Oh, goodness. Yeah, the, the first of 20, because GPS is a is a it's a mesh of, of satellites, right? So yeah, 24 block two GPS satellites was launched. Block two were the first modern GPS satellites that formed the modern GPS system that we know today. What year? Ooh. Oh man, modern. What is modern by GPS standards? Well, it's what we use I wanna, today. I want to go nineties, so. but I feel like I'm gonna overshoot yeah. it again. So I need to go with myself and I'm gonna go. You should go 80s. I'm going 90s. You know what? I'm going 87. It's a good year. I was going to guess 93. 87, baby. Let's roll it. James, what you got? 91. 89. Oh. We had another, oh. this is another one where two, oh. people, two people were both two years away. <laughs> Jeez. Right, we, have to, we have to figure this out. We got to settle this off the I show. Don't, I don't remember we the last time I actually got the year right on one of these. <laughs> It's been a long time for any of us. You're getting better. You're getting better. Yeah. Okay. All right. We can move on. We can move out of that. Um, James, man. Uh, so you wrote a book. Is that was that the deal here? Is that what? Yeah. Wrote a, um, I, you know, it's funny how it, it it came to be. So I've done the the cloud computing thing, and. Mm -hmm. uh, and was like, what, what's the next kind of trend I can kind of pay attention to? And I've, I've been playing around a lot with uh, some stuff that so we'll, we'll talk about as we go here um, uh, to, to kind of model things that help you kind of figure out how things might evolve. And so I've done a worldly map on, uh, on basically event-driven uh, technology in general, event-driven architecture, however you want to say it. Um, and as I looked at it, I, so I thought the really interesting thing was uh, event-driven integration. And so I happened to get uh, invited by Tim O'Reilly to, to have breakfast with him one day. And, uh, and he was, you know, asked me some questions about a previous thing I've been working on. And then he said, well, what are you working on now? And I said, you know, I'm really like obsessed with this concept of, and, and this is the theme of the book here, um, as the standards and the protocol, the standard interfaces and protocols start to appear around event-driven uh, architectures, that that's going to enable uh, event-driven integration to be done much, much simpler. And when you do that, um, you begin to reduce the cost of integrating real-time data flows. And you reduce the cost of real-time data flows, that's going to fundamentally change a lot of the ways that commerce is done between organizations uh, uh, across the globe across the internet, right? So it's going to be another major 
shift in the way that we uh, it, the, the kind of the tagline is that, you know, in, in the way that HTTP linked the world's information, what I'm calling flow will link the world's activity. And so that's sort describing of describing data flow, data flow like a water, right? Mm -hmm. And the way water flows over geography, it's going to find the most efficient path. Are you Correct. saying there's an aspect here, and that's why is, there, is that why there's a fish on the on the front of the book too? Or? Part of the reason I, I you know I didn't get to choose the animal. My wife thinks it's the ugliest <laughs> fish on the face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're well, telling me uh, all these all these O'Reilly books that have all these random animals. It has nothing to do. There's no like um, metaphor you can reject, here. You can reject an animal, but uh, they, what really, honest to God, what's going right on right now is that they've gone through all the most of the mammals and they've gone through most of the birds. And so they're, they're on fish right now. Okay. Cause some of these make really sense. There's a, uh, oh, yeah. there's another one by uh, it's like building microservices and it's bees, you know, building a, a honeycomb, mm -hmm. like a hive kind of deal. That makes sense to me. Right. You, yeah. yeah, yeah. Insects are, insects are another one. Yeah. And yeah. insects are They still have those where it makes sense to do, but I, I think there's something to flow with the fish. Um, yeah. I think the, but the, it is, in fact, that's one of the metaphors I use early in the book is, um, you know, where there's resistance um, to uh, to the to things flowing through a complex system as fast as they need to, it needs to flow through the complex system and as wide and expansive within the system as it needs to flow, then, uh, you know, as, assume that system can adopt, adapt, then it will evolve slowly but surely to have more and more efficient mechanisms to move that 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 flow, whatever it is, blood or, or water or whatever. And in this case, what I'm arguing is, is that, you know, there's a big resistance in the cost of connecting two businesses around real-time data today that is impeding the speed at which people want the certain activities to be connected. For instance, a good example I'll give you is um, today, you know, if I, most of my education information, like what skills do I have? What knowledge do I have? You know, is a combination of transcripts, which are so outdated right now, nobody wants them. Or what I tell people in an interview, right? And, and what I put on my resume and, you know, very little verification can happen around that. Um, it, you could imagine a world in which um, as I pick up skills doing, you know, uh, training at work, maybe certain activities that I complete that, the, that um, you know, wants to be recorded in one way or another, um, you know, certain jobs that I've taken on, projects that I've delivered, that that information could actually then be made available um, uh, to anybody who wants to know an update in terms of, of my skill set and what that may be. And so some of that isn't real time, right? Some of that's going to be, I want a database of, of, of the state. But some of that is going to be possible to allow, uh, you know, organizations to very quickly uh, make decisions about uh, where to place somebody with a certain skill set, um, given the, the, you know, the current situation in terms of the, the projects they have or the customer situations that they have or whatever it may be. Um, another good example is, is something where you have a little bit more of sort of a broker relationship, right? Like, so having trucks with uh, partial load availability, uh, being able to be matched much more easily with employers that have a need for less than truckload delivery and being able to um, very, you know, because truck drivers don't want to sit around and wait to fill that truck. So if there's something available, they want to know about it. now. If there's available truck space and somebody wants to get something shipped, they want to get it out the door right now. And if they can get it cheaper than having to wait for a whole truckload, they'll take it. Right. So those so are some saying, of the kind of ideas. Of, you're of you're just, saying that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was, I was just going to finish my sentence. So that those are some of the ideas of, of the ways that being able to to lower the cost of connecting organizations together could allow for faster uh, types of negotiations and and uh, and commerce to take place. Because you're arguing also that it is inevitable that it will that, that this will happen. And so yeah. yeah. And that's a question, sorry, not a statement. 
Yeah. Well, and and I am. And then the reason that I am is connected to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, the Wardley mapping concept. I don't want to go into depth on what Wardley mapping is here other than a very high level definition, which is imagine taking a, a, a sort of value chain stack, a, a, a user need that you want to fulfill, and then all the things that you need in order to be able to fulfill those user needs and then and you know and then chaining that all the way down to you know for that for that first level need what's the second level needs and so on uh, to a scope that you care about right and then taking that graph that you end up with of needs and mapping it onto a um a scale that goes from uh very genesis being invented nobody really knows what it is in detail yet but there's an idea that you could solve a problem somehow you uh, using some technique through custom development of something that's that we kind of understand what we're trying to build here and how it solves the problem but everybody's got to build their own to product where people say hey there's a standard way of doing you know there's a there's a more general way of doing this we think we have a differentiated way to do it here's our product to do that to a commodity or utility where, uh, okay, you know what? Everybody expects it to work a certain way. So just deliver it the way that everybody expects it to work and then add value around that. And so James, when I map, uh, I, I apologize to interrupt you. I love a good wordly map, by the way. Um, <laughs> man awesome. My own heart with that. Um, I, I don't. I don't work directly in the space like this anymore. I am scholastically trained in distributed systems. So I'm, I'm going to try and core because I've not, I've not heard of flow architecture. This is new to mm -hmm. me. So I'm, I'm going to try and correlate, you know, a question maybe. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm seeking to understand. Right, sure. Uh, you know, if I think of like distributed workflows, there's really kind of like two different types of communication styles. And they really kind of exist in sort of this sort of, I, I don't know how you describe it, like a uh, disparate systems they are built in multi-tiered architectures, and then they communicate over either an orchestrated communication style or some form of choreographical communication style. But when you described it as like correlating it to HTTP, that's really neither of those. Um, yeah, that's but more information is more static than activity too, right? So I, I think that's okay. a, that's a fair statement. But you, you know, when I link something in HTTP, it's linked for many, many, many exchanges of. Right. of that information, right? When I link activity, basically there's a shelf life to the value of that link. Um, and sometimes, you know, in like in trading, it's super fast, right? Like within milliseconds, the value of, of that um, linking activity A to activity B becomes less and less valuable. Um, whereas in other situations, it might take a year for the value to really drop significantly. Um, but yes, um, so the so the idea of linking activities more about this is why flow is the right word and not, you know, link or graph or web or something like that, sure. right? Because it's really about the movement of a necessary resource in a system. In this case, it's about the movement of data and state change information through the internet and all the software systems that uh, are connected to the internet. So is this kind of a standardization of the way you would do, you mentioned state change. How, mm -hmm. It seems like the idea here is, I'm going to use link um, or maybe even flow between multiple disparate parties, if I'm reading that correctly. How, how do you manage state change of this data or does it, does it not matter? So what an event is generally is a representation of a change of state being communicated from right. the source of that state change to those that are interested in knowing about that state change, right? Right. So, um, so, so the, the way that you essentially manage this is to, to uh, I'm trying to find the right way to kind of put this, right? So what, there's, there's, is to let each of the operators kind of own their piece of the exchange. So allowing okay. producers to decide what to publish and who to allow to subscribe to those streams, right? To, to be able to receive that event and have, you know, having control over, over what the rules are for being able to receive the event and which events get pushed to, to which groups of people and allowing consumers to decide when they want to connect to a stream. 
and which of those events they decide to accept and do something about and which they decide to ignore. Um, and so, so the operator kind of lives within an, like an operating pattern to, to manage this. Is that kind of, well, so you have, you have a different operator managing the producer than managing the consumer, right? It's a lot like when you link a web page, right? There's no coordinated operational, um, right. activity between, you know, me linking to something on Google, um, and Google, I don't have to kind of coordinate with them at all. And in this case, right. we've decoupled at that level too, right? A huge part of this is that the way that event-driven architectures allow for very strong decoupling in terms of the knowledge of producers and consumers of each other, um, especially for the knowledge of producers of consumers, um, which allows for consumers to decide when they want to join a stream, when they don't, when they want to, you know, remove themselves from receiving from a stream, what they do downstream with that data, right? So you can process it, change it, maybe create a new event to publish on a separate stream, um, or, or maybe you take an action, or maybe you just store that data someplace. But it's it's a composable model as opposed to an architected model, right? It's it's not something where everybody plans ahead of time that this is the way we're going to link everything together. It's actually that the need for the data, the need for that flow of information uh, dictates how the connections get made and how they evolve over time. And so the system sort of self-evolves based on the um, you know, based on the the wants and desires and needs of the participants themselves. Uh, so that, okay, so you use the word composable there. That kind of opens my eyes a little bit. So in order for this sort of future state to to be what it is, and I apologize if this already exists today and I'm just, just missing the boat, it, it's almost like you just, you go down to the API level and there has to be some form of like shared consensus on what, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how far the stretch is, right? Just say organizations that they sort of agree to and they use, you know, across here to be able to kind of drive this this shared, almost adaptive model or system together. Does that does that seem? Am I am I catching that correctly? You you just hit the center of the bullseye, right? So the entire point of the book is that there are standard. There, there's a need for standard interfaces that everybody just expects to be there. Interfaces being APIs primarily, but uh, flow control and a couple other things. And protocols, meaning data structures primarily, both metadata yep. representing what's, what is what is the event, sort of meta description, and then the actual payloads themselves. And agreements on both of those aspects of things so that Basically, what you want to get to in the long term, and what I believe is inevitable to happen in the long term, is that you will have just, you know, like you have with HTTP today you'll, and JSON today, you'll have standard libraries that just go ahead and take care of all the connectivity for you, take care of parsing the, the data for you as appropriate. And really, you know, most consumers of streams are just going to point whatever application is relevant for that stream to uh, a endpoint that represents where to subscribe to the stream. And then there will be a, you know, almost certainly, but it doesn't have to be, and I could explain that more if you guys are interested, but almost certainly be a publish and subscribe kind of metaphor. Um, the, the, the value of that metaphor and, and the understandability of that metaphor for, for especially tech people, but also for non-tech people is just so strong. Um, and so you you would subscribe to you know a, a set of, of streams you would receive that data but you probably as the application owner would have to do very little development of your own in order to be able to connect to it so that's the sort of the long-term view today we have candidates for what those standards may be but if you were going to integrate say you know uh your businesses um uh, you know, uh, say sales systems to your suppliers' availability systems today, you're almost certainly going to do that uh, using an agreed upon custom interface that you negotiate with the supplier in some way, right? Like if you're if you're sure you know, if you're Walmart, you go out and you say, hey, everybody, this is the interface, and you have to use it. If you're, you know, if you're uh, have less leverage than that, then you're you're certainly going to have to kind of work out with them. Well, how are we going to make this connection happen? Um, but it's it's changing slowly but surely. Right, part of the reason is more people are actually consuming events, so there's more 
activity in terms of trying to figure out how to do integration with events. You have the major cloud providers solving the problem for themselves, not using standards that are like open standards that everybody uses. But they're, they're demonstrating the model of the value um, with things like Lambda and EventBridge at AWS, for instance, and, and Amazon or uh, and, uh, Azure has their event stuff. They have four different event um, related services. Uh, you've got um, Google that has uh, you know a bunch of event driven stuff in their environment as well. And so they're demonstrating the value of, of being able to do these things at scale. And really what's missing at this point in time is a way for me to say, hey, I've got an app on Google that consumes events of this certain type. And you know the vendor I want to speak to that's sending those events is on Amazon. So I just want to be able to say, okay, cool, give me the you know, link, whatever it is, whatever the URI is for that, and let me connect to it. And so we're moving there, but I'm arguing it'll be 10 years before it's really commercially big because of all the problems we have to solve as we get there. Yeah, there's there's clearly a lot of barriers there. So if I, if I take this back to the HTTP comment, which I think I completely misappropriated in the beginning, this is common on this show. Uh, <laughs> I... I think if I think of it more like, so if I think of, you know, a traditional distributed system, like the way we take different components of a system and we make them communicate together, it's very simple. We use a, we use a queuing system, right? We queue, message, mm -hmm. deliver, client server type of thing, right? That's standard. We've been doing that for whatever, 20, 20 30 years. Um, but this, when you think the HTTP, HTTP, you know, side of this, it's like, it's very asynchronous and it's, it's not one system. It's this collect. It's like a mesh. It's like a mesh of systems that communicate right. across the same, you know, uh, I don't know what these shared protocols Protocol. and API, et cetera. Shared protocol yeah. and, and interfaces, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that must make, I mean, I guess what maybe I'm curious how you arrived at the concept or the idea here. Just, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's yours or if it's someone else's and you built off of it, but the, the scale here is insane. Is this sort of the thought process of as it, as technology evolves and the way we interact with each other and the way the experiences are shared, you know, across technology evolve. Is this just an inevitability because of the scale that is going to need to be operated at in order to work this way? There's no way to design this in a singular system. It has to be a collective, at least in the way I'm thinking about it right now. Is that is that kind of the thought process? Or how did you get to this point of flow architectures are the way of the future? Yeah, it, it, to um, so I was lucky enough to work in a few businesses where um, real-time data being utilized faster um, demonstrated its value immensely, right? So um, one was uh, that um, I worked at a company called Sosta that uh, large-scale cloud-based performance testing, right? They'd run these massive, massive, you know, multi-million user tests against places like Macy's and, you know, and, you know, websites where they, they really wanted to make sure that their response time was extremely fast so they wouldn't lose business. Um, sure. And one of the things that we did, obviously that's a data problem as much as it is a, you know, a test execution problem. You're collecting massive amount of data in response. And they had a real user measurement system, which is basically collecting all your browser performance data for every interaction with your website, like every, and getting all that data. And so they wanted to be able to kind of represent that data very easily. And so they did it for the performance use case, but then they started getting questions from customers about, hey, how can we correlate this or at least overlay this with conversion numbers, meaning people who actually bought things? Like how do yep. we know what resulted in the sale or didn't result in sale? Well, so we presented this, that was my, my job at the company was to build some data science products around those concepts. Um, and so we presented this sort of uh, ability to do this sort of massive display screen um, that your operators just sit in front of so that they could see the performance data in real time. Um, but we also did some of these overlays where we showed, hey, you know, for a given campaign, here's the performance of that campaign and here's what the conversion rates for that campaign look like. Um, basically using that real user data to do it with 10 second delays. And so we had that information up and, and sort of uh, overlaid with each other. And we had the VP of marketing of the first two customers that we had. In uh, both of those customers, the VP of marketing came down and said, hey, how do I get people in front of that screen? This is the first time we've seen campaigns reported and campaign success reported in close to real time ever, 
we've had to wait right. 24 hours to see what the results are up until now. It's awesome. Right. So, so with that, you know, I was looking at God information, like especially activity information, state change information is just looking to get to places and be of value faster, always, you know, right. wherever you are. And so what are the things that would allow that to happen? Well, APIs, pull interfaces, have done a lot to speed some aspects of this up. Certainly command and response things are way, way easier to do. And that's why you have businesses like Twilio and yeah, uh, sure. you know, a number of these other API-based businesses. But, um, but we don't have that yet for signals from one vendor to another. We don't really have a signal mechanism that is super easy to connect to and, and kind of display to. And that was really the, the thought. Like when I mapped out the event-driven architecture, I saw this gap with the interfaces and the protocols for connecting from producer to consumer. And I said, you know, when that changes, very quickly, my brain went to, oh, my God, that's just going to allow information to move that much faster and that much more broadly, to your point about scale, um, to more and more players that couldn't afford to do an integration of any sort um, in real time today will suddenly become very cheap for them to do it. And that leads to experimentation, uh, right? And when you get experimentation, people discover new powerful methods of solving problems or new problems to solve that weren't solved before. And, uh, and it generates even more demand and even more interest in that technology. And I just see that flywheel coming, right? Yeah, the, fly, the flywheel philosophy is, is important, right? It's like, how do you get people to latch on and, and yeah. drive this? I, I yeah. sort of foresee, I wonder if you do as well. There's challenges with everything we do in life, right? And nothing, nothing worth doing is ever easy. But it does seem like there's probably a lot of political or... I'll just call them business-oriented challenges where stakeholders fear that level of, I'm going to call it cooperation in some way, even though it's it's more like extensibility, right? You just make something extensible, people take part of it. But it's it's almost like, how do, how do we interoperate in this world where we operate all of these different entities as a mesh, but all of those different competing entities in some cases have their own identity and provide whatever it is towards their users that's important. I think there's the independent, you know, scenarios where you talk about a business that uses event-based, you know, whatever it might be to drive and correlate data about a thing, a person, the next idea that we're going to do, line of revenue, whatever. But do you, mm -hmm. I feel like the major issue here is going to be the same thing we always run into is, people not wanting to work together and trying to drive their own lines of value. Does that, I don't know if that comes up in the book. It's, it's an O'Reilly book. So it's probably yeah, I mean, technical and mattering, but well, thought process I mean, that's, that's the weird thing with this book, right? Is that the feedback I get on the book and you can see it if you go look at the reviews, right? Is you either get people going, Oh my God, this is, you know, I, I really enjoyed reading this. I got something out of this. It's a great view of the future or whatever. Or you get people going, what the hell is this? This is useless. <laughs> yeah, right? and, I was actually just reading what, all those. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the what the hell is this? This is useless ones. I am certain are people who came looking for a book that would tell them how to do integration with events, which I do yeah. a little bit of in the last chapter at a very, very high level. But because there's no standards and interfaces, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, here's how you do it with Kafka. Here's how you do it with Amazon. Here's, you know, I'm not going to, doesn't make sense to go through that. Um, but uh, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the, the, the business drivers versus the business challenges, right? Um, the political drivers versus the political challenges to okay. a certain extent, and the missing technologies that are involved as well. There's, there's a whole chapter kind of on all of this. Um, really, I, I think one of the things is to look at the drivers, though, um, when you look at one simple stat is that something like 55% or 65% or something of the people surveyed expect that um, if information is available in one place related to a given interaction or transaction, that they expect it to already be taken care of, right? That, that, that there be a unified experience, even if they, if, even if it's with another vendor. So for B2B, there's a B2B survey that I found where B2B folks expected that, you know, as I'm doing business with one vendor, if there's a related product from another, that they already know what I purchased from the first vendor, right? All these kinds of things that um, are expected in terms of the way that my activity on the internet seems like a single 
expression of myself that can be consumed by those that I want to be able to consume it um, in a way that I want. So businesses are driven to say, how do we make the customer experience better by being more knowledgeable about what the customer is and what they're doing and what they want and, and how can I reach them more directly? The other um, side of that, though, is that to your point um, on the cooperation piece of it is, is that this is one of the reasons why the technology takes a long time to happen, because it's not just things like identity, which why that's a home run in terms of one of the big problems that has to be solved, right? How do we, sure. how do you provide a single, because remember, there's an API in the front of this, because you have to establish the connection. To, to subscribe to the stream, right? There's an API yep. in the front to subscribe to the stream. So that's where authentication activity can take place. So it's not like there's a brand new problem that we have to solve there, but you, you need a way that you can say, hey, when I pass my information to you or I pass my certificate to you or whatever it is, you know what to do with it. So that's gonna have to get worked out. Monetization is gonna have to work be worked out in some way, right? How can I expect to be able to subscribe to something and say, yes, I'm willing to pay um, and then get billed for it. Um, there's a bunch of things, uh, you know, related to, uh, you know, a number of things related to different way, aspects of what it would take for business to happen well. So to, to your point, uh, I do cover quite a bit of that. I think the drive to meet customer need and to um, also sort of the OODA loop principle of beating your competitor to a solution that, that gives you an advantage um, those drives are more powerful than the resistance to uh, to working together to establish an interface or protocol standard. And so I believe that the interface like that. protocol standard will happen as a result. I, I, I hope that becomes true of a lot of other things in life. Yeah. Um, it's just just in general. I'll tell you this. You know, you mentioned the reviews. And Julie said he was looking at them. Um, that type of swing in review makes me an instant customer. I just bought the book on my Kindle. Um, any, anything that provokes enough thought from this is useless to this is incredible is uh, yeah. is something that I'm a fan of. So uh, I just got it. <laughs> so well, I'm on board. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, listen. Uh, to, to your um, to your readers, you know what I what I or to your listeners in terms of, of readership for this book, I think the people who are really going to get a lot out of this are the folks that are looking to the future for sort of where where the opportunities are and where the the movement of integration is, especially when you're looking at the ways that you interact with other businesses or with consumers or whatever. If you're really interested in that idea about how how do we tighten up the experience and how do we, uh, and what are the business opportunities that come out of that? Um, then I think this book is really gonna speak really well to you. If you're interested in how I sat down and why, um, and figured out what I think is inevitable and why I make I feel strongly that I'm making a good argument for why it's inevitable. Uh, it's a good book for that too, because I do talk in a couple of chapters just briefly, I, I kind of go through the way that I arrived at, at this so you can get an example of, of how that works. But I, uh, you know, if you're looking for something where you can sit down and say, okay, this is going to tell me how to use Kafka to do cross-organizational integration, then you'll be a little disappointed. I think. So just a, James, just a kind question. of a background. Yeah. Are you are you Thanos? Am I Thanos? <laughs> Never mind. Okay. I'm, here. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here laughing. I'm sitting here laughing on mute. I just both of the listeners of the question and, and and the response. The long pause made it even better. <laughs> oh, <laughs> of course, I'm not Thanos. That, that sort of Never made mind. me think he was Thanos. Uh, <laughs> he's like, oh, it's got. Oh man, no. These, so Thanos you've opened my mind. Thanos. Now I'm very, very disturbed by the pronunciation of that name. That actually happens to um, be my middle name. I know. No, the, hey, I was, the, I was actually going to ask. Sorry, yeah, sorry to uh, steamroll you, Aaron. No, go ahead. Um, this, a lot of this is over my head. I, I mean, I think I had a very rudimentary understanding of what an event-driven architecture might look like, and and I, I mean, in my my little bird brain, it went straight to just sort of if that this then that, and it sounds like a lot of the complexity um, really lies in the, yeah, great, uh, if this then that, but how do I get the the if this part right so that's where the publish the subscription and then i immediately started wondering about the authentication the the monetization of those things but i'm i'm almost going to have to read the book just to understand what questions i should be asking about this <laughs> yeah um I, and i think the other side of it is in in maybe maybe i'm i just totally um 
you know, skip the reservation on it, but is, is the concept of event-driven architecture really driven to feed more advanced sort of data science with the, the right real-time information as opposed to actually, quote, solving the problem? And, and I ask that because in, in my mind, like, so, many, so many problems are mathematical optimizations, right? So think mm -hmm. operations research, and you just need, you've, you've got data scientists, they've determined all of the, or as many variables as they can possibly determine exist, and they're trying to weight them, and maybe that's dynamic, what have you, but without getting real-time updated information relevant to or relative to every one of those variables, then the model is is only so good. Am, am I right in thinking that the, you know, sort of future state you envision for this uh, cross-organizational integrated event infrastructure is going to feed that kind of math to, to be able to make decisions? Or does it go past yeah, just no. the information transfer? Uh it's a great question. So um, I'm going to answer it slightly weirdly, but I'll get to the heart of, of answering your question very quickly. So what, in the last chapter of the book, I have a, a sort of a flow chart. And, and uh, that's, so there's a huge appendix at the end, which is really just a, an overview of the event-driven architecture market and the different pieces that and where they land in the model that I came up with, just to give you an idea of just the incredible tech that's already available. Um, but um, but in there, I, you know, some feedback that I had gotten from um, from the the chief architect of uh, messaging systems at, at Microsoft in terms of a decision tree about what technology would you use to process your event, depending on how you look at the event stream, like like how you want to consume the event stream. So is it, you know, I, I won't go through the whole thing, but it's things like is it, you know, a discrete event or is it a series of events that have to be looked at together and. Uh, is it uh, you know, uh, uh, meant to be a stateful event that you're keeping track of the state or, uh, or is it more like uh, you know, a piece of information you're taking in and you take an action then you forget that state? Um, so to get to the heart of what you're talking about then, one of the really powerful things that comes out of this is the ability to do things like digital twin models where um, uh, 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 one of the really big cell phone companies out there literally has a digital twin model that is driven by uh, event streams that represents every single tower, transmitter, cell phone, uh, you know, anything interacting with their network uh, is represented at, uh, and the state of those systems are represented in this model. So they can make real-time decisions about distribution of, of traffic and, and maintenance and all those other things uh, uh, very, very quickly based on the current state of the environment. And, you know, that entire thing is built dynamically off of the stream. Um, so they're, they're reading the stream and saying, oh, there's a new agent here. Let's represent that agent with a new, uh, with a new digital twin. And then let's connect it. It seems to be connected to these other things. So let's make establish those connections. And that's, you know, that's an incredible, powerful, um, example of sort of being able to to consume the data stream in a way that uh, most data scientists wouldn't have thought of, say, 15 years ago, because they were looking to do a map reduce run on a big data set. In this situation, there's actually a, a company called Swim.ai that has a digital twin model environment. They're actually um, building dynamically uh, AI decision models within that digital twin model so that the agents themselves learn and change their behavior depending on you know a set of rules given to them by the developer, but but based on what they see in the environment in any real time. And so that ability to be very adaptive from the information that's coming in in real time requires the ability to connect to these real time systems. But there's also going to be you know just fire a, a function as a result of something coming in. Um, and there's you know I think Simon Worley himself has a bet that by 2030 there'll be a company that's worth a billion dollars based on a single function. And I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what he thinks. And uh, <laughs> so you can imagine that's that that's going to require a data set that's easy to subscribe yeah. to to execute that function. The yeah. real-time nature oh, okay. of this is interesting. Sorry, Tyler. I just it just no no no. I, no, just, I, didn't, I, I didn't I didn't think about this um, when you were describing that you know, the data scientist workflow, uh, they, you know, they traditionally work on 
data sets, mm-hmm. not necessarily that they already have, but that they're the stale data. You know, it's like yeah. they collect data after the fact. It's almost like the data's yeah. Is, like after the fact, historical, historical maybe is, is yeah, a way to say history. it. It's exactly right. Even if it's relatively fresh, it's still fairly, yeah. Yeah, it, fairly historical. As soon as it's written, <laughs> yeah. it's old, right? Sure. This, so, um, this though moves it to where, you know, it's, you keep saying real time. So I just, if you compare it to like the evolution of what even a data scientist would be looking for with these types of integrations, you can at least get closer to real time or closer historical data as opposed to sitting on data sets that you get from you know however you go about getting them but i don't and know maybe, way, I, maybe i'm thinking wrong but. this this isn't the revolution part of it that i'm talking about so people are doing adventures and architectures and they're also doing ai ml against incoming real-time data right it's okay. happening today and in, in large scale today um it's really probably what is moving the most from custom to product and maybe even towards utility today uh in terms of data is is that Real-time stream processing with AI is kind of yeah. what's what's different though is that everybody that's doing it is either doing it against streams that they control from beginning to end, right? It's all right. inside their own like organization, Google. right? Or they have some sort of um, some sort of agreement with the other vendor one way or the other to say, okay, um, this is how I'm going to get that data from you. Um, so this idea that you could do it without having to have any formal agreement other than maybe a usage agreement or something like that um, is really, you know, so it's still slow for us to build this mesh that you guys talked the graph of all the activity being connected together. Um, what When it becomes cheaper and easier to do, it will explode the rate at which this happens. And that's where, you know, you end up with, and then I, you know, it's, you know, just for fun, kind of throughout the term, the worldwide flow out there in the book, right? The yeah. idea that you get nice. one single mesh of all the activity in the world that's captured digitally, uh, influencing each other and all the good and the bad, because it, you know, it's a complex system. It's going to yeah. create some weird stuff happening that we don't want. But um, but you get that. And, and I, you know, with the argument that the business and social value will outweigh the risks um, that will inevitably show their face as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you brought up the AIML side of that, too, because I, I would think that as complex as a, a worldwide flow could end up being, would end up being, I think just fundamentally, it's going to be incredibly complex. I'm not even sure it it makes sense to have sort of human readable or, or just functions based off of that. You need something that can go beyond mm-hmm. uh, just you know taking the inputs and spitting something out, but actually trying to change the way that it's used in real time, which seems like an appropriate use case for for artificial intelligence and machine learning. So that's that's neat. Um, I got another question for you. Unless Aaron, you you had something that tipped your tongue a little bit ago. Uh, I did. I don't remember what the question was. I'm just absolutely fascinated by this, though. It's opening up a new part of my brain uh, that I haven't ever really thought about. And it, it kept it kept drawing me back to uh, Tyler. Do you remember that time that you had? Uh, I don't know how long, how much effort it took for you to get the beef shipped from uh, Louisiana <laughs> to, to DFW. But I just kept yeah. thinking, gosh, if there was some sort of API that you could hit that just said, look, I have a load that's here that needs to go there. And that Walmart trucker could just pick it up. And yep. just like bam, real time, rather than you taking two Instead and a half days and eighty-four brokers, phone calls, yeah, and right. brokers yeah. and all this just ridiculousness to get what ended up being a Walmart trucker that had, was yeah. driving a freezer truck just had exactly. you know your stuff in the back. So my, my brain kept going to that, and and so the the thing off of that is like the way that you're opening my mind is what these five star reviews are on Amazon. The one star reviews are people complaining about who you worked for. Like to be real, it's somebody, saying, like, it's somebody that had a problem with VMware, like, and their their review oh, is about VMware, not about your book. So it's it's embarrassing. Uh, to well, I feel bad that, for those people. That's that was a perfect segue because my is, question was: this is great. James, you're at VMware now. What brought mm-hmm. you to VMware, and what exactly are you doing at VMware in this space, or what is VMware doing? Slash, what can you tell us? <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's a great question. So um, I, I joined. I, VMware through the Pivotal acquisition, I went to work for Pivotal. I, uh, James Waterson, who's the CTO, was uh, at uh, VMware Tanzu now and was uh, CTO of Pivotal. And I are, are old, old friends around the cloud computing stuff. 
And uh, so I came to work uh, as sort of a field CTO for the organization and uh, have really played a, a, a role in helping to guide engineering and product in the development of the Tanzu application platform, which is the newly released uh, developer platform for Kubernetes that we've we've built. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've used my close to 30 years of background in, in distributed systems development and operations and uh, supporting customers doing that to, to help guide that. And so now that that's sort of out the door and we're, we're sort of working, you know, really hard on what have we learned from the early customers and, and improving the platform. One of the things that has come up is what can we do to make uh, event-driven systems easier to build and easier to consume? So certainly serverless comes to mind to very quickly to people who are in this space, like, okay, so what are you going to do in terms of, uh, of allowing developers to just kind of create event-driven applications without having to worry about the fact that it's Kubernetes underneath? So that's a big part of what I spend time on uh, right now, and uh, and just also uh, you know in general, what what do customers want from us in terms of being able to uh, you know uh, discover event streams to work with as a part of what they're doing in development uh, to test and debug event uh, driven applications and those kinds of things. So uh, you know we're not you know we don't have anything formally today in VMware Tanzu that is this is event driven architecture although I will say the spring side of the house has a lot. Um, there's a lot of uh, spring uh, streaming and uh, and uh, event driven kind of technologies uh, for for Java developers but um, but we are very aware that as we build an enterprise-centric development platform, that it has to support event-driven systems in a way that's extremely easy for developers and might even hide the underlying infrastructure completely from the developer, which is a, a wonderful goal, I think, for us to have and, and to drive towards. Yeah, it's very cool. I, um, I think, you know, James, you and I are probably long lost friends somewhere. Uh, <laughs> very much so a world that I've I've grown up spending a significant amount of time in. Um, this was I'm just this was awesome. for us. I'm glad you could make it, man. I'm glad you were classically trained in <laughs> distributed <Yeah>. architectures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, that, that worked out well uh, in this particular scenario. And uh, anytime someone says the word Kubernetes uh, in and or around my organization, I am CC'd on the trip report. So it's definitely, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all, this all worked out really well. It was good stuff. I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to my new book. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing feedback from you about how it goes. So thank you. Absolutely. James, we'll have to have you back, man, to talk through uh, a bunch of tech news too. Just get your take on some of this. Yeah, stuff. for sure. There's some crazy things in the news today, but I think we're out of time. Yep. That, that does about do it. But James, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm definitely going to be reaching out to you internally because I too am at VMware and now I have all kinds of questions uh, <laughs> about all kinds of things. So, so I'm going to go pull your ear on that one, but that brings another Tech Breakfast podcast to a close. Thank you so much for joining us, James, and everybody who's listening. We hope you enjoyed it. I sure did. My my hamsters are freaking out right now and going in every which way. But uh, looking forward to getting into your book and learning more about event-driven architecture and, and flows and the, the worldwide flow, because that's awesome. But uh, yeah, again, thank you. And uh, thank everybody for listening, subscribing, and sharing with friends. Let us know how you liked it. Cheers. Later. Thank you.